All right, well, beautiful singing. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'd open up to the book of Jonah. Today, our text of study will be in Jonah 1, the back half of um, chapter 1, starting in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there are blue pew Bibles, and it's on page 451. If you have a Bible with you and you're trying to figure out where to get Jonah, it's, it is a small book, but it's in the, um, really near the end of the Old Testament. And as you turn in there, if I've not met you, my name is Aaron, and I'm the preaching pastor here, and uh, really grateful that you're with us uh, today. You know, this is the time of year that our church starts to scatter a little bit more as people start to travel for Thanksgiving. And so um, I'm glad you're with us today. Uh, I thought those who were with us last week, it was such a great potluck afterwards. So make sure we thank um, both Sarah and Kate for all their hard work and all the other ones who helped make that potluck uh, so helpful or so fun last week. So uh, with all that being said, let me read verses 7 through 17 of Jonah chapter 1, and then I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing in our time, and then we will get to work through this passage. So Jonah 1, starting verse 7, this is what the Bible says. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And where is your country? And what people are you? Are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to them, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet, uh, quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For you know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not his innocent blood on or lay on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered up sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens up your holy word, even through preaching. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word. Please help me, God, to be a good communicator. Please help the congregation to be good listeners. And we do pray that your spirit indeed would speak. I pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there's a, a famous old poem written in the late 1800s by, name, uh, by a man named Francis Thompson, a poem titled The Hound of Heaven. Now, because this poem is a little longer poem, it's actually 182 lines, uh, lines long, and because it's setting we're in, I thought it might be difficult to try to engage in that poem if I read it for you here. So what I decided to do is maybe try to tease you a bit into reading the poem by reading some comments that a man named uh, J.F.X. O'Connor wrote about the poem in the early 1900s. Okay, so this is what he said about this poem, The Hound of Heaven. It says that the name is strange. It startles one at first. It's so bold, so new, so fearless. It does not attract, rather reverse. But then when one reads the poem, this strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing near in its chase, with unhurrying, uninterrupted pace, 
So God does follow the fleeing souls by his divine grace. And though in sin or in human love, away from God it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after it, unwearily follows after it, till the soul feels the pressure forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. Okay, so I say it this morning. It's up for a text of study in the back half of Jonah 1. Because we come to a text I think illustrates a thought that Thompson was trying to convey in his famous poem. As we see in our text today, the hound of heaven was at work through his divine grace to chase and capture Jonah, who was doing all that he could to run away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, now before we get to our, our text today, let me first set the context, just to remind us where we left off last Sunday. So the book of Jonah seems to be an autobiographical story written by Jonah, who in 2 Kings, we learned, was, was a prophet of God. Uh, who was used by God in 2 Kings 14 to do a great work in Israel through his preaching. In our text of study last week, we learned in the opening verse of this short book that the Lord came to Jonah to give him another preaching assignment, which was an assignment that required Jonah to arise from where he was, uh, presumably northern Israel, and to travel five to 600 miles to the east to the great city of Nineveh, which is located in now modern-day northern Iraq. Now, Nineveh was a great city for multiple reasons. It was great in terms of its population, possibly the largest city in the world at this time. It's great because of its landmass. It's great because of its influence. But most importantly, in the book of Jonah, Nineveh was a great city in terms of its evil and wicked ways. So in our text, a study last week, as Jonah was given this preaching assignment from the Lord, Jonah determined this was not an assignment for him. Jonah came to the conclusion that he needed to get away from this assignment. And he came to this conclusion because of how much disdain he had for Nineveh. And in his great disdain, Jonah didn't want to preach to them because he didn't want God to be gracious and merciful to them to bring about salvation to the Ninevites like he did previously in 2 Kings 14. Rather, as we learned last week, Jonah wanted judgment to come to Nineveh. He wanted them to burn in our text last week, rather than obeying the clear command of the Lord, Jonah decided he was going to get far away from possible from this command from the presence of God that he could get. So we read last week he traveled down to the Mediterranean port city of Joppa, where he paid a fare, where he entered a boat that was headed to Tarshish. Now, as mentioned last week, scholars don't know the exact location of Tarshish, where it was, but there's a good amount of clues throughout the scripture that give us a pretty good idea, or at least a general idea, of where it was located. So when you add these clues together, most scholars feel this ancient city of Tarshish was actually located in Spain, the exact opposite of where Nineveh is, about as far in the opposite direction as Jonah could go in the ancient world. By the way, this week I was talking to Ben Llewellyn, and he's kind of adding up the miles on the map. So Tarshish could have been as far away as like 1,500 miles to the west of Israel, like three times the distance from Israel to Nineveh. So that's how committed Jonah was to get away from this command of God. This is how committed Jonah was in his disdain for the Ninevites. I mean, he was willing to leave home, pay a fare, travel a great distance, just so he didn't have to talk to other people about God. Well, in our text last week, even though Jonah was able to successfully find a ship that he thought would help him flee from the presence of the Lord, the hound of heaven did not simply uh, passively sit back and let the prophet get to his, uh, just kind of go in his own way. Rather, he chased the prophet. So as the ship made its way out to the sea last week, 
the hound of heaven hurled a great wind upon the sea that caused a mighty tempest, so mighty that the ship was now being threatened to be torn apart. And as this violent storm raged on, the men of the ship, the sailors, started to pray to their different pagan gods, hoping to find relief, which none came. And as the storm raged, the men of the ship were put into a panic, filled with fear. And as the captain of the ship, as he was noticing that Jonah was nowhere to be found as the tempest raged, so the captain made his way down into the inner part of the ship, and sure, much to his surprise, he found Jonah there fast asleep. And as the captain found Jonah asleep, he didn't like, you know, try to like quietly back his way out of the inner part of the ship, you know, not wanting to disturb Jonah in his slumber. Rather, the captain cried out to him, to Jonah, Jonah, you know, what are you doing? How are you sleeping with this storm raging? Jonah, arise, call out to your God that perhaps he might hear you and save us from the storm. Okay, so that's where we left off last week. So Jonah rejecting the clear command of God. Jonah attempting to flee from the Lord's presence, only for him to be chased by the great hound of heaven. So with that as our intro, look back with me in our text, starting in verse 7, where we see that the captain, as he's waking Jonah up, we see that the men of the ship, the other sailors, were still trying to figure out how in the world they were trying to escape from this violent storm. Right, the prayers to the pagan gods didn't work. In verse 5 of our text last week, hurling the cargo overboard into the sea as an attempt to lighten the ship. That didn't seem to be working. So we read together in our text today that they came together to cast lots with the hopes that through the casting of lots they could determine on whose account this great evil had come upon them. Now, let me mention just a few things here about casting lots. So first, in the Old Testament, this was a practice that from time to time God's people would do when they're trying to understand God's will. In fact, there's maybe something like 70 or so different references in the Old Testament to casting lots. Okay, to go back to our recent study of 1 Samuel, we just finished up a few weeks ago. Remember how lots were cast in 1 Samuel 10 that led to Saul being anointed as king. Uh, multiple times in books like Numbers and Joshua, casts, or lots were cast to help determine how like, land would be split up between the various tribes of Israel. Uh, the book of Proverbs also speaks towards casting lots and maybe helps settle disputes. So 70 or so references of this practice in the Old Testament. And the New Testament, so before uh, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, before the New Testament canon was written, we actually read how the disciples cast lots as they're trying to determine who would replace Judas, the one who uh, betrayed our Lord with a kiss. So now while it's been lost to history exactly what the lots were that were being cast, most think that you're maybe like some sticks, perhaps like flat stones, maybe a coin that would be rolled or flipped. And however these lots would land, that would point to different things. And maybe for us, maybe think like, you know, like trying to roll a dice, you know, flipping a coin here. Second, let me point out that what the sailors are doing in our text would be similar, yet different from what we see in the scriptures. Similar in the attempt that they were trying to use the lots to gain wisdom, but different if they were, as they cast the lots, they were not by faith in God, which was part of the Old Testament practice of casting lots. It was by faith in God they would cast lots. But I think it's safe to say these sailors were casting their lots more out of like a superstition here, uh, trying to make an appeal to their pagan gods. Having that being said, even though the motives of the sailors were not correct, in our text we're about to see that God actually still used the lots to make his will known. Third, let me mention here also quickly that while the practice of casting lots in the Old Testament uh, was there, uh, this is not a practice that we see instructed for us in the New Testament. 
Okay, now, even though I just mentioned the book of Acts, we see disciples casting lots. Right? That was before the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. This is before the New Testament canon was written. So even though the disciples of the New Testament were casting lots, in a sense, they're doing so like between the times, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But now, the Spirit is here. Now we have the Word fully given to us. We have the New Testament canon. So we don't cast lots to determine God's will. Rather, what we do, we search the Scriptures. We pray to the Lord, who in the New Testament book of James tells us, gives wisdom when we ask for it. Uh, we seek counsel from godly men, godly women, to help us make good, wise decisions. Okay. There's a little thoughts here just on, on lots. So back to our text. Then verse 7. As the lots were cast, as mentioned, the Lord determined that he was going to use the casting of the lots and to show his will. So he see, we see in the text that he caused the lots to fall on Jonah pointing to Jonah as the reason of the violent storm that was taking place. And as the lots pointed to Jonah, we see in verse 8 of the passage, uh, the sailors basically put him on trial. Uh, Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Could you tell us more about yourself? Uh, Jonah, what's your occupation? Where did you come from? Uh, Jonah, what is your country? Uh, what people are you from? Now, the sailors put Jonah on trial. Clearly, they're trying to get to the bottom of things, trying to figure out what to do from here. But this is because I was kind of thinking through this. I almost feel like the sailors are actually trying to give Jonah maybe the benefit of the doubt here. So yes, the lots fell to him, but at least to me, they didn't want to like rush into a quick judgment that perhaps maybe the lots were wrong. So, so they're asking questions. They're almost like giving Jonah the benefit of the doubt. Maybe like in the language of our courtroom and our society, almost like he's innocent till proven guilty for these sailors. And I think this is perhaps the tone of the sailors here, because what we'll see in just a bit in verses 13 and 14. Well, the sailors are really trying to protect Jonah in this scene here. Which, by the way, I do think is part of the irony that we're supposed to see in this passage. How, like, how gracious the pagan sailors are in this passage towards Jonah, even though Jonah was clearly not wanting to be gracious towards Nineveh. Verse 9, as it's time for Jonah to respond to the questions of the jury, we see him respond by giving basically his testimony. You know, sailors, to answer your question, who am I? I? I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, which in the Old Testament text, the word Lord in the EFC translation, this is, this is Yahweh. Like, I fear Yahweh, the great I am, the covenantal God. I fear I am Yahweh, which is the name given to Moses at the burning bush. That's who I fear. I fear him, the God of heaven, uh, the very one who made the sea and the dry land. Amen. Now, quick thoughts here. First, the word fear is actually kind of a key word for us to pick up on in chapter 1. So you can take your eyes back to verse 5 from last week. The sailors were afraid, calling out to their gods. Verse 9, I just read, Jonah, like he feared the Lord. I just mentioned this is part of his testimony. Verse 10, the sailors, as they heard this testimony of Jonah, we read that they were exceedingly afraid. Verse 16, when we get there, these men, these pagan sailors, they feared the Lord, they feared Yahweh exceedingly. Okay, so this is a key word for us in the text. Second, just the word fear comes with the notion, or carries with the notion of worship. Okay, so in the scriptures, when we read fear God, like worship is tightly linked to this phrase. Back up again, verse 5. As an act of fear, the, worship, the sailors worshipped as they called out to their false gods in prayer. In verse 9, 
Jonah's testimony was pointing to the one he feared, the one he worshipped. Verse 10, as the sailors heard this testimony of worship, they were extendedly challenged to fear in their own worship. Verse 16, the sailors respond to the testimony of Jonah in fearful worship of the Lord by doing likewise, like worshiping the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, so we'll come back to that in just a bit. Third, we also mentioned here Jonah's testimony of how he relates to the God of heaven, the one who made the sea, the dry land. Right, this is here pointing to the truth that God is the one who is sovereign over all things. That he's in control of all things. Right? All things are created for him. All things created by him. All things bow down according to the purpose of his will. So once again, packing up where we were last week, verse 4. It's a sovereign hand of God that hurled the wind upon the sea. You get to verse 15 in our text today. It's a sovereign hand of God that calmed the same sea. When we get to verse 17, it's a sovereign hand of God who appointed the great fish to swallow up Jonah. Okay, so this is what Jonah is testifying here in his testimony. That God is the one who is sovereign over all things. Fourth, let me also mention here this testimony of Jonah. I think this captures maybe the famous phrase by the great reformer Martin Luther, which uh, gave a Latin phrase. It says, Simul intus ec pector. Is that right? I don't know. I don't speak Latin. But it basically means at the same time a saint and a sinner which is the truth for all of God's people in this present age. Right, so even though we worship God, even though we fear God, even though we are redeemed saints of God, as he declares us holy, at the same time, we're, we're still sinners. Right, and that's Jonah here in this book. Right, he's a Hebrew. He's one who feared and worshipped the Lord. Yet, as we know in this passage, in this text, he's still in sin. He's clearly disobeying God's good command, which put the hound of heaven in pursuit of him. For us, until the Lord returns to set up his eternal kingdom, this is the reality for God's people. Saints, at the same time, sinners. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 10. As the sailors were exceedingly afraid after hearing this testimony of Jonah, we see that they want some more details. Like they're trying to figure out what to do with this information. So, so Jonah, uh, tell us, what have you done? In our text here, this question, they ask this, already knowing like what he has done. Pastor tells us he already told them how he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Right? So the sailors knew what he has done. So I think this question here is more like, what have you done in terms of, what have you done in terms of bringing the hound of heaven upon us? Joe, what have you done? Why have you done this? What will your God do in light of your disobedience? Right? What have you done? Verse 11, after the sailors asked Jonah what he's done, we see that they want to know what they're to do from there going forward. So in Jonah, in our son text, Jonah, like, now what do we do? What do we do now that we've been sure, man, that you're the cause of the storm? You know, what, what, what should we do so that your God would quiet down the storm that's upon us? So in the text, the sailors are asking Jonah what they're to do. We see the hound of heaven actually wasn't relenting as they're asking these questions. You know, like, give them some time to collect their thoughts, get the best strategy, strategy to move forward, uh, to, do, to figure out what to do with Jonah. We see that the Lord of Heaven didn't, uh, the Lord, the Hound of Heaven didn't relent. We see that the sea was growing more and more tempestuous, more and more rough, and as the sea became more and more rough, putting the ship into even greater threats of being broken up. So as that's happening, Jonah responds back to them, sailors. Actually, let me tell you what you need to do here. I think the only way that you can be saved from the storm is to pick me up and hurl me into the sea. 
I must die in order that you guys might live. I mentioned here the word hurl also is actually one of the key words that we need to see in this passage. Go back last week. God hurled the great wind, verse 4. Verse 5, the men hurled the cargo. Now Jonah is telling the men to hurl him into the sea. Jonah knew if he was hurled into the sea, the hound of heaven would be satisfied. The sea would quiet down. There would be peace. Yes, he would die, but they would live. In the text, Jonah understood. It's because of him. It's because of his sin that the great tempest had come upon the sea. And I don't think Jonah needed to be a prophet to understand what was happening here. Like he, he knew this. He knew he was on the run from God. And I'm sure he knew that God was not going to allow him to get away. Verse 13. Even though Jonah told the men what to do, in terms of like hurling him into the sea, even though he told them why they were to do that, the text tells us that nevertheless, the men kept rowing the best that they could, desperately trying to get back to dried land. I think this here is more like the ironic graciousness of these pagan soldiers, or sailors. Right? They're trying to save Jonah's life here. However, even though they're doing the best they could to get back to dry land, it was not going to happen. You see, the sea only grew more and more rough, fighting more and more against them. Just remind friends, we can't fight against God and win, no matter how hard we might try. Verse 14, as the sailors finally accepted, they're not going to get back to dry land, at least not with Jonah still on board. We see God does incredible work in their hearts. And our text tells us that these pagan soldiers now started to call out to the one true and living God in prayer, calling out to the Lord, to Yahweh, so in the text, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, you have done as you have pleased. Basically, Lord, please do not hold this against us, that which we're about to do to Jonah. Lord, this is your desire that we are fulfilling here. So please do not hold it against us. Verse 15. After the sailors prayed to the one true and living God, you see they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. Which There's that word, word hurl again. And as the body of Jonah hit the sea, you see the sea ceased from raging. And as the sea ceased from raging, we see in verse 16 that basically a worship service breaks out on the ship. Almost like a mini revival here. As the sailors exceedingly began to fear the Lord, and then in keeping with their fear of the Lord in their worship, we see that they offer up sacrifices to the Lord, making vows and commitments to follow after him. Friends, this is really an incredible work that God is doing here. Finally, for us this morning, where we're going to end, is perhaps the most famous scene of the book of Jonah, verse 17. We see that as the sovereign Lord calmed the sea, we see that the Lord also appointed a great fish, possibly a whale, but really impossible to know what kind of a great fish this was. And we see that the Lord directed this great fish to the body of Jonah, where the great fish swallowed up the prophet of God, where Jonah would be inside the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights before the sovereign Lord caused this great fish to spit the prophet back out onto dry land, which we're going to actually get to next time in our study of Jonah. But as mentioned for us, this is where we're going to end in verse 17. For the hound of heaven chased 
and captured his disobedient prophet. Okay, now for the rest of the time here this morning, how I want to close out, just giving you a few thoughts concerning this hound of heaven. And I do think this is actually the main point the author wants us to see in this passage. How the hound of heaven, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the one who made the sea and the dry land, was at work to accomplish his will, even though his prophet Jonah was being disobedient. So I have a few things. So first, the hound of heaven will chase his people. And this here, I think, relates to like, how God disciplines his people, which we talked about last week, briefly, uh, last Sunday. How God, in his love and mercy, disciplines his people when his people are on the run from his commands. Now, I know the word discipline at times can feel like a loaded term. They can communicate a spectrum of different things. So just to be clear what I'm aiming for here, let me just read you Hebrews 12, part of Hebrews 12. It says this. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. So how much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, meaning the Lord, disciplines us for a good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those being trained by it. And friends, in the text, this is what the Lord is doing here to Jonah. He's pursuing Jonah as a loving father pursues his child to lovingly discipline Friend, God in his love was not simply idly sitting back and letting Jonah leave his presence. Like he can have this like, you know, oh well, shrug the shoulders attitude. You know, I'm just going to let Jonah go and do his thing. Rather, the great hound of heaven pursued Jonah. Pursued them all the way out to the middle of the ocean. I was briefly mentioned last week, which Hebrews text I just read to you mentions that the discipline of the Lord can be painful. So in our text today, this was not a pleasant scene. There's great panic. There's great fear. There's a prophet being hurled into the ocean. Yet through that discipline, that's how the Lord was grabbing hold of his prophet and not letting him go. And friends, for us, scenes like this, I think should at least do a couple things in our own hearts. First, things like this, they should actually warn us. You know, when you and I, when we like thumb our nose at the Lord, which is this warning, he will pursue us. And he will lovingly discipline us to get us back on track. Second thing, this actually is a great comfort to us. So friends, here's the reality. If left to our own, we all would walk away from the Lord. We all would leave his presence. On our own, none of us would persevere to the end of our faith. But we can take comfort. The hound of heaven won't let his people walk away from him. Rather, the hound of heaven pursues and continues to pursue his people all the way to the end. Friends, take comfort. The Lord pursues his people. And in his pursuit, he proves that he loves us. 
It proves that indeed we are his precious children. Second, the hound of heaven pursues us with all of his sovereign power. And I do think this is right there at the top of the points that this text is making today. That indeed the Lord is the God of heaven. Indeed, he is the one who made the sea and the dry land, which ironically is what Jonah declares even as he's being disobedient. You can help us see this, how God is the one who is pursuing with all his sovereign power. First, let me back up to our text again last week, where the hound of heaven uses sovereign power to hurl the great wind on the sea, which is verse 4. Then our text today, the hound of heaven uses his sovereign power to work through lots. So they fall on Jonah, which is verse 7. The hound of heaven uses his sovereign power to cause the seas to rage more and more, which you see in both verses 11 and 13 of our text today. The hound of heaven uses his sovereign power to also cause the sea to stop, to cease from its raging, which is verse 15. The hound of heaven uses sovereign power to bring about pagan sailors into the worship of him. We're going to talk about more in just a bit, which is verses 14, 16. The hound of heaven uses sovereign power to point a great fish to come swallow up Jonah, which is verse 17. Friends, even though Jonah was doing all that he could, all in his power, to get away from the presence of the Lord, the hound of heaven pursued him with all of his sovereign power. So friends, when the Lord pursues us, he's not pursuing us like some type of weak, bumbling pursuit. You know, this is not like almost like a yin-yang balance of power going on here. You know, where Jonah had like his power to flee, God had his power to pursue, but they're kind of like equal in power where there's a struggle to see like who's going to win out, will it be Jonah, will it be the Lord? Rather, our text reminds us that the Lord uses all of his sovereign power he used all of it to accomplish his will according to his wisdom and his purposes. Which, by the way, also should drive us to fear and to comfort. Fear to remind ourselves just who our God is. Amen. Right? The Lord, he's the one who's sovereign over all things. He is the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth. He is the one who commands even the wind and the seas to obey him. And for those who have faith in the Lord, that is an incredible comfort. So know the one that we fear, the one that we worship, he's the one who is in control, who has all the power, all the authority over all things, including all the power, all the authority, to keep his people, to keep us in ways that no one will ever be able to snatch us out of his hands so that no one, no thing, will ever be able to separate his people from his love. Even the sin in our own hearts. The mercy of our sovereign God, who has all the power, is more than even our sin. And Jonah's great disobedience here was being captured. But the Lord, by his sovereign power to keep him. And by the way, you know one of the songs that we love to sing here, this is the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I do love that song. And friends, as we sing that song, we're singing it to the great hound of heaven who has all of the sovereign power to hold us fast, to, to keep us to himself, even when we fear our faith will fail. Even in the times where it seems like the tempter is going to be the one who would prevail. 
even in the times when we feel like we're on life's fearful path. And you hold us even when our love feels cold. Friends, take comfort for those who are in faith, have faith in Jesus Christ. The great hound of heaven will hold us fast with all of his sovereign power. Third, the hound of heaven will fulfill his mission. As I mentioned last week, that's really the primary emphasis of the book of Jonah. That God, he's a God on mission. A mission to spread his glory throughout all of the earth. A mission to put his love and mercy on display for all eternity to the salvation of sinners. Including great sinners like the people of Nineveh, which we talked about last week in the opening verse of this book. Which is actually the first place where we see God at work through the hound of heaven to create this, to fill his great mission. Right? The Lord gave a mission, the command to his prophet to rise, to go to Nineveh, to preach revival that God was desiring to do in this great, evil, pagan nation to fulfill his mission. As we last week, again this week, God was going to have this desire met, this desire fulfilled, even that required him to put on the hound of heaven to chase Jonah. But that's not the only place where the hound of heaven is at work to fulfill this great mission of God. In our chapter today, in the mission of God, the hound of heaven was at work in the lives of pagan sailors who in our passage last week were just praying to their own pagan gods. Yet, in our text today, as these pagan sailors heard the testimony of Jonah in verse 9, where the prophet testified to the Lord, the sailors had their hearts gripped with fear, becoming exceedingly afraid. And the Lord used the testimony of his prophet to soften the sailors' hearts. So these once pagan sailors put their faith in him. Verse 14, as they began to pray to the one true living God. Verse 16, where these pagan sailors, once pagan sailors, they have, began to have exceedingly fear in the Lord, which drove them to worship him by offering sacrifice and making vows. Sometimes there's, there's, I know there's a lot of different things happening in the passage today. And often when we come to this passage, maybe our mind are taken to where the passage ends. And the great fish that uh, the Lord appointed to swallow up Jonah. Well, let's not miss this here. God and his mission just saved a ship full of pagan sailors. And he didn't just simply save them from the raging sea. He saved them from their sins as they turned to the Lord, putting their faith in him. Friends, this is an incredible work of God who was fulfilling his mission. And by the way, maybe on a little side note here, this also should give us confidence as we're seeking to testify to others. Right? The work of God that he does in this ship here to bring sick, pagan sailors to himself, it's a reminder that indeed God is mighty to save. Third, so not only the Ninevites, not only the pagan sailors, but God also was fulfilling his mission in Jonah. And not just referring here to the mission that he was going to do through Jonah, but here I'm actually speaking about the mission that he was fulfilling inside of Jonah. So friends, when God brings us to saving faith in him, right, we are standing before him justified. And from that moment onward, God continues to save us, which he does through his sanctifying work in our hearts. 
where the Lord is growing our hearts to be holy like he is holy, where he's at work to make us more and more like Christ in our character. I have to go back to the Hebrews passage I read for you earlier. From the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are being trained by it. Friends, that's what the Lord is doing here in Jonah. This is really what he's going to be doing throughout the rest of this little book. In his mission, in his saving work, the Lord is actively sanctifying Jonah, training him in righteousness. Friends, the Lord, he saves and he continues to save until his mission is fulfilled. And friends, for us, to start to close the scriptures, in the end, the mission of God that the hound of heaven is on, you know, is ultimately brought about how? By the Lamb of God. By the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, the one who pursued us in such a way as we celebrate at Christmas that he came for us, fully God, fully man. As fully man, Jesus Christ, he came for us, born of a virgin, to live a life just like man in every way, yet without sin. And as fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to God's good eternal plan, according to his mission, to satisfy the judgment of God that burns over sin, right? he wasn't hurled into a sea, but he was nailed to a cross not because of his sin, which is why Jonah was thrilled into the sea, but rather Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross because of our sin. For Jesus Christ proved to be the true Lamb of God, the one who actually did shed innocent blood, where he took on the judgment of our sin in our state on the cross to satisfy the judgment of God, the wrath of God. For on the cross, Jesus Christ, he did die. And he was buried in an appointed tomb, which Isaiah 53, 9 tells us would happen. But the Lord was buried in the tomb for three days. So by his death, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they would find peace with God. So that by faith, they would not perish in their sin. Rather, they would find eternal life. But not only did Jesus Christ come to us fully man, but as mentioned, he also came fully God. Where at times, even in his incarnation, the Lord put his sovereign power on display, including a story I've seen about this week that has so many parallels to, the, to Jonah here. Whereas the one time our Lord was out at sea with his disciples, and a great storm came upon the sea that put his men into great fear. But when they went to find our Lord, they found him fast asleep. But as the man woke Jesus up, Scripture tells us that the Lord then stood before them and with all of his sovereign power, he called out to the sea, Peace, be still. And with that, the seas ceased. The sea, the storm, they bowed down before Jesus, the sovereign Lord. And as this thing was happening, it caused his disciples to be gripped by fear, causing them to also bow down and worship Jesus by even saying, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And friends, with that same sovereign power that the Lord Jesus Christ used at that scene, he picked up his life on the third day, where Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Right? He's not in the tomb. He's now alive, and he's calling all mankind to come and to worship him as the Lord, to declare that indeed that his wooden cross, that his empty tomb, mean everything. 
And by his divine grace, he gives us a promise that he will save all who come to him by faith. He will save all who call upon his name. He will save, save all who bow down before him as Lord to save us from our sin and save us to himself. Just like he did with the evil Ninevites, which we'll get to in chapter 3. The Lord saved them as they came to him. He will save us, just like he did the pagan sailors on our ship today in the text. In his divine grace, he will continue to save us all the way into eternity, just like he did with Jonah. So yes, friends, there is a great hound of heaven. Indeed, the hound of heaven pursues his people with all of his sovereign power to complete his eternal mission that he has set forth. And friends, this morning, let that drive us to fearful comfort. That we can worship a God like this. May we give all praise and worship to Lord Jesus Christ, who in his divine grace follows after us in a never-ending pursuit. Let's pray. I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Spirit of Christ that you send out to accomplish your will, including bringing sinners like us to faith. And Lord, please forgive us when we try to flee. But Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you will pursue us. Lord, I do pray that all here today would bow the knee to Jesus. That they would taste and see that indeed you are good. And Lord, please be with our little church family here. Help us to trust in you in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.